Great song. Now, last week, you will remember, we took a little side trip um, between chapter 7 of the book of John and before we started chapter 8. And I wanted to take, you know, we have given you so much material uh, of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the deception, all the stuff that was going on. We've made all of the parallels back and forth to our own time. And I just wanted to, you know, I don't do you any good if I just throw out a lot of information if you don't have a context of it. So we took all the material so far out of John 6, 7 and and uh, dealing with Christ and his rejection of the as the word of God at the first coming of Christ. And we put it into, hopefully, an understandable context. I don't want to just throw out a lot of stuff to you without helping you uh, understand it and to explain it. And, you know, I wanted to lay out for you the single greatest key, really, in getting your Bible together and understanding why things are the way they are in the world today. And that is the great truth that history always repeats itself. The repetitiveness of history. You see that in the book of Ecclesiastes in the first couple of chapters. That's really the theme um, that he really establishes before he starts to go through and show you all the devices that is in a man's heart. And he does that through the rest of the book. But he wants to start out by showing that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's going on has been. And the fact is, you know, when today with all that we face... You know, it's no different than what Christ faced at the first coming of Christ. The parallels of history from the first coming right up to the day and age that we live in facing the second coming. And I showed you how that in every period of church history, every period of church history, if you're a student of church history, you you would see this so clearly that God has always had his key men. Uh, God always had the lights in the darkness. There's not a time in history, no matter how to black it got, whether in the Dark Ages, it started around 500 A.D. up to around the Reformation in 1500. That's not called the Dark Ages because of the fact that nobody could pay the light bill. It's called the Dark Ages because Christianity was thrown into the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years. She ruled the world, and boy, I'll tell you what, because of her hatred for the very book that you have in your hands or a variation of that, threw the world into complete darkness. Hence, it's called the Dark Ages. And it's a thing where, you know, it's, it's one of the greatest lessons that you can learn that no matter where you're at, if you go back in history, God will have his men who will hold the line and keep the lights on. And yet every one of them that you study will pay a tremendous price for it. And we, we saw how the Bible Christianity today in 2021 Uh, certainly has been destroyed by our modern-day scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees, which translate on this side of the cross into the Bible scholar mindset. And I showed you how that at the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of neo-evangelicalism, neo-orthodoxy, and, of course, the charismatic movement, how that they were tools and still are today of the devil to destroy the faith of young men and young ladies uh, in the Word of God. And I showed you that in spite of that, not only does God always have his man who stands in the darkness, but God always has his remnant. 
And, you know, the Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the, guide of, in the sight of God. You know, we, one of the things you learn about God is the fact that God never is found in the majority. He's always found in the minority, the remnant. And you're going to find that down through the history of the church, that is so true. The great overshadowing of, the, of, of Romanism and all of the Protestant churches that you would just, you know, take up every part of history. Yet uh, you'll find that uh, the real Bible believers, the real men and women who were doing the job was a remnant compared to the great monstrosity of, of, of the day. And I showed you how that God used two men in our day in the 20th century. They're both dead now, but God used them from the beginning, uh, one from the beginning of the 20th century up to about the midpoint and then picked up the other one uh, about midpoint and, and up to about 2006, and that would be J. Frank Norris and then, of course, Peter S. Ruckman. And I showed you how that uh, those two men, you know, were who were the ones who kept the lights on for us. I, it, would be a, it would be an absolute true statement to tell you that without those two men, you would not have the Bible that you have today. We all would have been swallowed up and Lord only knows where we'd have wound up and what we'd have believed. But thank God that he always has the men who are willing to pay the price for you. Now the question today is, and I ask this a lot, are you willing to pay the price for the next generation? You see, that's how it works. You know, I heard a lot of Christians over the years and good men, good people, nothing wrong with them. But I heard them always, you know, talk negative about uh, Dr. Ruckman and J. Frank Norris, too. There's places you go down in Texas that if you bring up the name of J. Frank Norris, you'll be asked to leave. I mean, uh, he was hated by so many people. And, uh, and that's also true of Dr. Ruckman. But, uh, you know, I've always, I've always over the years, have heard, uh, you know, negative talk about Dr. Ruckman from the King James guys. You know, they, they talk about the fact that he was, he was rough, and he was. He was uncouth, and he was. And, of course, the fact that he, uh, you know, he, uh, they would claim to be he's an angry man. And, uh, and I, I heard him preach a great message one time. He said, you know what? You're really not a good Christian or a good preacher until you're angry about something. And he was angry about something. You know what he's angry about? Somebody taking the Bible out of your hand. I'm angry about that. And, of course, um, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, he, he attacked all the other brethren, you know. Well, I'll just tell you this. He didn't attack anybody more than they attacked him. And uh, the problem was that he attacked them a lot better than they attacked him. And I, I often thought about that, you know, when I've, I've had people who were my friends that, uh, that would say that. And I don't ever get into an argument with them. I don't really care. But I always walked away and thought to myself how shadow that mindset really is. I mean, to miss how God used those men to give you your Bible. And the fact that they, that they wouldn't, if they wouldn't have done what they've done and took the stand, we all would have been swallowed up in apostasy if those guys hadn't held the line. And to my way of thinking, you don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. But a simple thank you very much would be enough. The fact that they did for you and for me what nobody else had done. And people miss that. We live in a day and age where God's people, the most of them, they have no idea of their roots. They have no idea where they come from. They believe a lot of things about the Bible, but they don't know why they believe it. And they certainly don't have any history of where they've come from. So they're caught in this great mush 
of, of Christianity today. And they're kind of just trying to figure it out. And, of course, it, you can't figure it out. And, you know, they always, uh, you know, and these guys, they always wanted to point out the character flaws in, in these guys. And, hey, I'll be the first to tell you, <laughs> they're human just like you and me. And they had their character flaws. I mean, they did. But you've got to understand what they're going up against. And a guy, guy one time, he says, yeah, I don't, read the, I don't read Ruckman at all. I don't have anything to do with him. He's such a, you know, he's, he's just such an angry man, and he's got so many issues that, that I don't agree with. And I said, do you read the first five books of the Bible? Oh, absolutely. Well, Moses was a murderer. Do you like the book of Psalms? Oh, yeah, my favorite book. David committed adultery and murder. But you read him, see? You like character studies? Oh, I do. Did you ever study Noah? I have. He got drunk. You ever hear a good message from your preacher? Maybe you preached to yourself on Gideon 300. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Gideon wound up having a house of gods. You like Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had. You like Abraham? He took Hagar. Isn't it strange how we like to pick some people we'll follow when we won't pick others? And the truth of the matter is, if you want flaws in character, just look in the mirror. God uses you. We get so fickle as God's people. You know what my biggest dilemma is today? My God just doesn't come down and kill all of us. And... Uh, Somebody said, well, they're going to kill you in the government and in the world. That's a good thing. We all deserve it. So now today, we are going to enter John chapter 8. And again, we're not surprised to see that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are right back after him. All to get rid of him as the truth of God's word. And you want to remember now, the parallels between the first coming and the second coming. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, and then it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was the physical, visible appearance in a man of the absolute perfect Word of God. At the first coming of Christ, they didn't want Him. They rejected Him, and they wanted to get rid of the Word of God. In its physical form. So then as he goes back to heaven and you go down through church history, you'll find that God gave us the revelation of his son in a book, which is just as pure and perfect as when the Lord showed up the first time. And yet we find that our modern-day scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees want to do the same thing at the second coming that they wanted to do at the first coming, get rid of God's truth. Now, boy, if you can learn that lesson and hang on to it, God will show you some things. I mean, there's a satanic mindset behind trying to get rid of the Word of God. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, which you all know very clearly. And I see a real hatred for the Word of God uh, that uh, that that is, is masked by the... Uh, you know, the, the, the fake godliness and the piety and all the humility. Years ago, <clears throat> I was a youth pastor. And I was in charge of high school like Zach and Jenny 
is here. And uh, I had a young man in my, in my, in fact, two young men in my youth group who their dad was a Bible scholar. He was a professor out at Calvary Bible College. And uh, I got to say that he was probably one of the most knowledgeable men uh, when it came to history. Uh, I mean, he really was. I, I'm, oh boy. I mean, uh, he really had a grasp of, of history in a general sense. I mean, he could tell you who Saladin was. He could tell you who this guy was. He could tell you this and that. He could tell you about this war, that war. He had all the facts. I mean, he couldn't relate any of it back to the Bible in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, but he was a brilliant mind. Now, when I came there as youth pastor, I believed the King James Bible was the Word of God, just like I believe it today. And I began to teach that. And uh, some of the young men in, in there, uh, you know, they, 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 they wanted to learn the Bible. Well, this guy's young man, uh, one of his sons, uh, he came in to see me. <clears throat> and his dad was an arch enemy of the King James Bible, as Calvary Bible College was back then and is today and always will be till they all, you know, whatever. So anyway, so we, we talked about it. And so he went back home. <clears throat> And, and then he makes an appointment about three weeks later, and he comes in to see me, and this time he has a book that his dad gave him. Now, keep in mind, this kid is at a teenager. He's struggling in life. He needs the Bible desperately as the age he's in with what he's facing. I try to give him the Bible that he has a sure word of prophecy that he can hang on to, he goes and tells his dad, and you know what the great scholar, the Bible college guy did? He gave him a book to read that showed all the mistakes in the King James Bible. That kid came back in. I'd lost it. I had nowhere to go with him because I couldn't outdo his dad. <clears throat> and so his dad now, he, he proudly displayed the book and said, my dad gave me this book that shows out all the mistakes in the King James Bible. Well, you know, <clears throat> what am I going to do? Call your dad a liar? Yeah, I did. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and I didn't care. But let me tell you something. <clears throat> that guy never did one thing for the Lord other than go from Bible college to Bible college destroying young men's faith in the Word of God. His boys, he had two boys and a daughter, if I remember right, all of them were out of church. None of them, especially the kid that I talked to, want anything to do with God today. You know why? All because we can go to a point in time <clears throat> where God wanted to give that kid the Word of God and his own dad. The modern-day scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees took it from him. I'm telling you. And it's a thing where <clears throat> I've watched men who are probably saved and they have a mind corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, and they just can't stand the idea that you and me as a common man, without any college education, without any degree behind our name, that we could actually learn the Word of God on a, on a level that is unparalleled uh, in a relationship with God. I've seen it all my ministry. And I, I've always wondered at it, and this is where I know how satanic it is in its origin. I've always wondered how anybody could hate the fact that God could give me a perfect book. 
I told a guy one time, I said, you better be really careful when you get to the judgment seat of Christ because you're teaching that that Bible is full of mistakes. He said back to me, well, let me tell you something, pal. You better be careful of telling people that it's a perfect book. And I said back to him, yeah, I'm really worried about that. I'm going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and I'm going to say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I led people astray. I told them that you could write a perfect book and keep it. I apologize for that, Lord. I should have known better that you could not produce a perfect book and give it to me. I'm sorry, Lord, that I taught my people that it wasn't hidden in two dead languages that nobody can ever read anymore, that you put it in a common language where everybody could kind of get it. I never should have told them that. You think I'm worried about that? I'm going to look at him and say, God, I'm sorry. I just thought you were God enough to inspire it, that you surely were God enough to preserve it. Think I'm worried about that? He better be. And I can just hear God, well, you should have known better than that to tell these people that I could write a perfect book. I don't think it's going to go that way. I mean, let me ask you. Parallels. Now, these guys believe that Jesus Christ was virgin born. They believe that, they believe the doctrine of the virgin birth. They believe that God brought his son through a sinful sinner woman, Mary, through a sinful line coming up from David, and yet brought him into a world through a sinner woman, but he was sinless, he was perfect, and no sin was attached to him even though he came in through the world system. Everybody would believe that but they fall apart when you try to explain to them that, you know what, if God could bring his son through a physical relationship in a sinless, perfect form, then he can bring his book down through the history of men, even though they're sinners, save sinners, and give us a perfect book today, just like he gave us a perfect Savior back then. Because you know what? They're both the Word of God. See how stupid it is? And that's what I said. What is the fact that God inspired something someplace once upon a time if I can't get my hands on it? Think that matters to me? And I say it again. You think, you think God was God enough to inspire it, but he wasn't God enough to preserve it? I mean, how stupid are you? And, you know, and it's a, I, I call that the yea, hath God said society, going back to Genesis 3, remember? When the devil said to Eve, yea, hath God said, then he changed what God said. There's a satanic mind behind that kind of thinking. I don't care if you're saved or I don't care if you're lost. Now, I want to show you these guys even in a deeper level today. Let's read John chapter 8. We're going to start the chapter. Here we go. Read the first 11 verses. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him and sat down and and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Notice, he gets a crowd, he starts teaching the Bible, look who shows up. You know why? Because they couldn't get a crowd. 
When he went down there to teach them, he had 5,000 men. That's not even counting the women and children. When they wanted to teach something, they could call roll call in a phone booth. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they put, him in the, put this woman in the midst of all the people that he's teaching. This wasn't a private thing. They wanted to publicly expose him as a phony. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Then a little interlude here by the Holy Spirit of God that kind of gives you the context of what you got here. You got to look for these in your Bible. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground, as though he had heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him, let him uh, first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Uh, when they heard it, they being convicted uh, by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the elder, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where art thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Uh, And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, help us today to glean from this great passage all that you have for us. Help us to learn again. On top of all we've seen last week and the last couple of months, the, the, the depth of this wickedness of getting rid of the Word of God. Let us today again make the parallels so we can learn once and for all what we're up against, what we're going to face, and how better to face it. We thank you, Father, for all you do for us now. In Jesus' name, as sick we ask it, we give you the honor and the glory. Put us under the blood. Forgive us where we failed thee. And help us, Lord, to be faithful in teaching your word. In Jesus' name, is sake we ask it, amen. Now, there's a couple things here I want to make note of. This is a really good example of what I say all the time, that most Bible scholars, and I leave one millionth of a percent. This is a real good example of Bible scholars being educated out of their intelligence. That's what education does for you. Bible education, anyhow. It will come to the point where their goal will be to educate you out of your intelligence and your common sense. And common sense is not very common anymore when it comes to the Bible. And I want you to see here that uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and we talked about this last week, I want you to see the simplicity of Christ, how easy it is to spot these guys. Because once you understand what they are, then you have a real better opportunity to see how they operate. Now, this will be your yea hath God said society. Now, this Alexandrian cult, like we called them last week, the Gnostics of today, we talked about those last week, will tell you when you go to Bible college, you go to seminary, you go to some bastion of truth that is going to teach you the Bible, Or in most churches today where the pastor 
<coughs> fancies himself as a Bible scholar <coughs> and he wants to rely on the Greek and the Hebrew to teach you his Bible. They will tell you that John chapter 7, <coughs> verse 53, which is the verse before we start chapter 8, and 8, 1 through 11, which I just read for you, <coughs> should not be in your Bible. They call this, in big $25 words, a spurious passage. A spurious passage means that it's in your Bible, but it really should not be in your Bible. That, and what they will tell you is, is that the best Greek manuscripts do not have this story in here. So, there'll either be a footnote, some Bibles leave it completely out, but they will tell you that chapter 7 through 53 to chapter 8 verse 11 should not be in your Bible. That's because the two Greek texts that they use that they hold up as the original and authoritative will be the two that we talked about last week that came out of the Roman Catholic Church that were corrupted in over 60,000, 70,000 places, Vaticanus being found in the Vatican in the 13th century, and then uh, Sidiaticus, which was found in the Sinai in the 1800s. They do not have the reading in there. So therefore, because they accept that, and all the new Bibles come from that, and they reject the text that your King James Bible come from, which is the Texas Receptus, which does have it in. Scholarship then decides, based on their stupid, ridiculous mindset, that that should not be in your Bible. So when you go to Bible college or you go to some place, they will, guys preaching on it, he will tell you that this is a spurious passage. He takes great delight in correcting God. Now, let me show you stupidity with a capital S. They're telling me, this is how simple it is. This is not rocket scientist. This is not not take a degree to figure this out. You just follow your common Bible. They say that verses 1 through 11 should not be in there. The story of Jesus and this woman not really to be in your Bible. Okay, look at verse 12, which they will tell you should be in your Bible because that's where the chapter picks up. Then spake Jesus again. Did did I miss something here? How did Jesus speak again if he didn't say what your Bible says he said? You see how ridiculous it becomes? Now, that doesn't bother them. You know why? Because their mindset is they don't care what the Word of God says. They only care what the scholarship of the world follows. That is one of the most absolute ridiculous things in the world. It shouldn't be in there. And then it says in verse 12, which is in their text, then Jesus spoke again. Really? How could he speak again if he didn't say something the first time? It's little things like that that shows you how absolutely despicably crooked they are and dishonest when it comes to the clear truth of the Word of God. It's unbelievable. 
Now, the second thing I want you to note, and this will be something a serious Bible student would, would, would pick up, but I want you to see the pattern here of the theme of the Bible in this passage. And I've talked to you many, many times for a long time about passages, excuse me, patterns, how that everything is a pattern. Everything in the Bible and life and history will follow a pattern. You want to figure it out? (coughs) Find the pattern and then follow it. I'm just telling you. Now, nobody with an education likes that because that's too simple. But I'm telling you, everything... Everything in the Bible, every pattern of man, human nature, history, everything that God is doing, everything that God made, everything that God created, and everything that God is trying to accomplish, there is a pattern for it in the Bible. Learn the pattern. You got it figured out. It's just that simple. And of course, you will see here, uh, if you note verse 12, It says, early morning on the Mount of Olives. Well, that turns my lights on. Because when Christ comes back with the restoration of the nation of Israel, he comes early in the morning on the fourth watch. Remember? Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Mark chapter 13, verse 34 through 36. He comes in the early morning watch. And he also, in the early morning watch, comes back at the Mount of Olives. So now we've got, before we get into this thing, we've seen a pattern begin to be established. What you're going to have here, doctorly, is a picture of this woman and the restoration of the nation of Israel up against the Antichrist, the scribes and the Pharisees, and Christ coming early in the morning in the Mount of Olives. That's a pattern. Now watch this. I'll show you another one. In the book of Joshua, you'll have a picture of the second coming of Christ in type. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you go over to Acts chapter 7, verse 45, there's a key verse there that tells you that when he is talking about what Joshua did in the Old Testament... In Acts chapter 7, verse 45, he changed the word from Joshua to Jesus. Joshua means Jesus. And what he has doing there now is showing you that everything in the book of Joshua, all the battles are going to be a picture and a type of the battles at the second coming of Christ. So you'll find everything there that they fight in Joshua being led by a man named Jesus to overcome the enemies of God and establish the kingdom of Israel. Incredible. Now, of course, allow me to pause for a moment. If you went to a Bible college someplace or some higher bastion of education, where the Bible scholars rule the roost, they would tell you that Acts chapter 7, verse 45 where the name Joshua is now inserted as Jesus, that that's a mistranslation. That that's a mistake in your Bible. And yet that was one of the greatest keys in the Bible to figuring out the pattern. But they don't want you to figure out the pattern. They want you to listen to them. They will destroy your faith 
in that book that God gave you every chance they can. And they will take the common everyday tools that God gave you and me to unlock that Bible so you will worship them instead of that book. Now, in the book of Joshua, we know now doctrinally that it's the second coming of Christ in all these battles. So we see in Joshua chapter 6 and Joshua chapter 7 the battle for Jericho. Now, how could you miss the battle of Jericho not being a picture of the second coming of Christ when you begin to look there and you find in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, that Jericho is called the accursed city, just like Babylon is. And then you'll find that when when that city falls, they get guys with trumpets, and they march around that city for seven days, which just happens to match the seven years of the tribulation period, led by a man named Joshua, who now we know is Jesus. And at the end of seven days, they blow the trumpet, second coming of Christ, and down comes the walls. And note, parallels in this story here, Joshua 6 and 7. There's another woman who's a harlot. She too finds the grace of God and salvation in spite of the wicked city, like the woman does in John chapter 8, in spite of the wicked scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Patterns, patterns, patterns. And both women are a picture of the nation of Israel as harlots, John chapter 7 and 8, and Joshua 6 and 7, that get restored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read all this, this story, it also becomes clear that all of this around the Lord Jesus Christ is a setup. From beginning to end. And again, all of this is a bunch of lies. All of this is a bunch of No truth. All of this is a bunch of nobody caring about the real word of God or what it says, altering whatever they got to alter, getting rid of whatever they got to rid of, and putting an example before the Lord so hopefully we'll get you to make a mistake and we'll kill you or at least get rid of you or at least discredit you. Notice verses 3 and 4. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman is taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that we should, that, that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Okay. Now the first key here that you know there's something is amiss is verse 4 where they called him Master. That's what Judas called him. Both Judas and the scribes refused to call him Lord. Did you notice what the woman called him? It's little things like that that goes back to that trained eyeball. I watched a science fiction movie the other night that you all ought to get and watch. It's a classic back from the 50s. It's called 
the crawling eye. Anybody ever see it? You folks are really short. You still on? You can get it. If you got cable on there, you just type in the say it on your little thing there, the crawling eye, and there, there it is. And I, I watched that. I know it's science fiction and it's crazy, <clears throat> but I look at that and I think to myself, <clears throat> at the end of the day, this alien monster, whatever it was, was a big eyeball, and it 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 lived in a cloud. Do you ever study clouds in the Bible to the parallels of today? You know, <clears throat> the world just never gets, uh, gets away from the Bible, does it? I don't understand much of this. My technology is right there. A flip phone. I like it because and this is military grade, by the way. You can drop it, throw it, and it'll live forever because it's military grade. But it's a flip phone. I don't have an iPhone. You people send me stuff that needs to be opened up so I can see it. Sorry. I keep this for two reasons. It's small. It's easy. I would break an iPhone if I had. But this is much more like Star Trek than yours. So that's my technology. But I am telling you, when you understand that all your information you have, they're telling you now, you know where it is? It's in a cloud. Nobody's ever successfully explained to me what that cloud is. I don't think they know. But all your information that you have that you thought you deleted, it's still here, it's just in a cloud. That should bother all of us because I reread in the Bible and Acts that when Jesus Christ went up, he went up in the cloud, and when he comes back, he's going to come back in the cloud, and all your information and my information is going to be in that cloud. You don't get away from that book. Here you are. We thought we deleted everything and took everything out, and there it is. You know where it's at? It's in the cloud. When the Lord comes back, we also, you all look like you're, now you're worried about something. I'm starting to worry about you people. It's all right. They called him master. They wouldn't call him Lord. And then they say in verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They want to just, and it tells you, they did this, they did this to tempt him. What they want to do is, you know, they, uh, they, and this will be Leviticus chapter 20, verse 20, and, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, excuse me, Leviticus 20, 10, and, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. And it says in the law that you stone, they get stoned. But look at verse 6. They, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now we know that there's no real care of biblical truth here. 
Now we know that this is a trumped-up, set-up scenario, which you will find in your Christian life if you minister, that people will set you up, and they will do it to destroy you just like they do him. And they said this to tempt him, that they might accuse him. A trap, a setup. Nobody cares what the Bible really says. Now, let me show you how despicable they are. Let me show you how dishonest they are. Let me show you how satanic they are. And back then at the first coming is the same crowd that we have at the second coming who are just as satanic, despicable, and everything. Now look at verse 6 again. The first thing I want you to see is he doesn't answer them. He's following Romans chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. No debate. Now what I'm about to show you will be a testimony to the total wickedness of a scholarly world back then and today. The Alexandria cult at its best. The yea hath God said society at its best. They are totally dishonest in everything that they do. They will lie about Christ as they will lie about you. They relied about his ministry as they will lie about your ministry. And they will use the Bible when it's convenient for them for their deceit, and they'll not use the Bible when it clearly goes against them. In other words, just like so many of God's people, they want to pick and choose out of the Bible what they want to use. And in every way, they, then and now, will lie to you and totally corrupt the Word of God to their end for their purpose. Now let me show you something. I want you to note this. They said... Their own words. Not hearsay, not somebody else said this. They said to him, we caught this woman in adultery in the very act. Then they bring her to the Lord to see what he'll say, tempting him to set him up for the purpose of accusing him. But, my dear friend, when you would go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 10, which is what they are quoting Moses in the law, it clearly says that you have to bring both of them, the man and the woman. Now, I must ask the fundamental question here. If they were caught in the very act, how the man get away? As they say in the world, something rotten in Denmark. I've never been to Denmark, but evidently there's something rotten there. Why did you just, my question to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, why did you just bring the woman and then you quoted Moses out of Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20 and you made a big deal about Moses and the law when you know you've already violated it by not bringing the man. How much more dishonest can you be? How much more of a setup can this be? How much more can this be picking and choosing what you want to do with the Bible just like they did with the missing verses, just like they did with Joshua and Jesus, all because of the fact that you want to discredit him, so you actually bring this woman in, you quote the Bible, but you conveniently leave out the parts that don't work for you. Now that's what this crowd does. 
then and today. And there's a lot of God's people who in their Christian lives just want to pick and choose out of the Bible what they want and leave the rest. Now watch. Verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. The Bible says, Christ, he stoops down and with his finger, verse 6, wrote something on the ground. Now there's been much debate over what he, what he wrote. And whatever he wrote, To the trained eye, the key will be the word finger. Now, you wouldn't think the word finger would be much of a study in the Bible. Truthfully, it's probably one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take. You see, finger in the Bible or fingers in the Bible will always be associated with something that God says out of the Word of God. You remember in Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, when Belshazzar is there and his kingdom is totally against God, we know the great story of the handwriting on the wall. And the handwriting on the wall was done by the finger of God. And he condemned his kingdom. We should remember in Psalms chapter 8, verse 3, talking about God's hand in creation, he said, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, the work of his fingers. We should remember again in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, that when Moses is up against Pharaoh, and in this particular case, it's the lice that he's bringing up, And the magicians of Pharaoh try to do the same thing, and they can't. What do they say? The unsaved Egyptian magicians say, we can't do this because what he did was done by the finger of God. Again, in Luke chapter 11, verse 19, he cast out the devil, and they say, How did he do that? He cast out the devil by the finger of God. And Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 10, we should remember that you were told that the Ten Commandments were given (coughs) to Moses (coughs) and they were written by the finger of God. Now you see that? I wonder how many people down through the history of the life in Christianity, even today, read that passage that I just read and miss all those key words. Trained eye. Learning those words. It goes back to study to show thyself approved unto God a workman, but they did not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And what you come down to is when the world gives you the finger, it's a sinful, godless act. But when God gives you his finger, he gives you the absolutely perfect, pure word of God. What a great contrast between the world and God. So when he stoops down to write what he's answering them, it most certainly, beyond any shadow of a doubt, had to be something in the word of God. Verse 9 says, Again, the trained eye. And when they heard it, heard what? 
The only thing he said to them is, if you, who's got the first, you know, no sin, cast the first stone. That certainly didn't motivate them uh, in their wrong. That's all he said. It says there, and when they heard it, heard what? He didn't say anything to anybody except that one word. He wrote down on the ground. He didn't say it. You bet somebody said it. There's a classic example where you read what God writes and the Holy Spirit of God takes that and you hear exactly what the message is. It wasn't the fact that he said, he that hath no sin, let him cast the first stone. That meant nothing to them. Whatever he wrote on the ground, they got it. And it was a matter, a great picture of how the Holy Spirit of God will convict you by what you read in your own heart. And the Bible says they were convicted. They knew that they'd been had. And it says that they were convicted in their conscience. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. Not going to do this today. But next week we're going to come back to this and I'm going to lay out for you in the Bible what your conscience is. I'm going to show you how it's connected to your body, your soul, and your spirit. I'm going to show you, we use it all the time, you know, your conscience, your unconscious, that's not the same, your conscience, senior moment, your conscience, you know, all these things. I'm going to take you into the Bible and show you what your conscience really is. Next week, I'll lay it out. But whatever he writes, they know that they had no answer. And the only thing that will shut them up is the Word of God. We see it again, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 4, where when the devil comes to tempt Christ, he lays out these three things that he wants Christ to do, tempting him. And you know how the devil answers him every time? It is written. It is written. It is written. After he says that three times, you know what the devil does? He leaves. Because the devil knows that there's nothing he can do once you present the clear word of God to him. And these guys are operating by the devil just like they do today. And when they get faced with whatever he wrote was in the Bible, they too leave. Now here's another great lesson. I think it's vitally important to see how they leave. You see, everything in the Bible is there for a reason. Everything in the Bible is vitally important. And the Bible tells you once they get convicted in their conscience and he nails them, then they leave from the elder to the youngest. Now, that's one of the greatest principles anywhere in the Word of God that the older kids will always destroy the younger kids. Every despicable, godless perverted, filthy thing I ever learned as a young man. I learned from an older boy. That's how it works. I've told families that have rebellious children and they have kids that are maybe 15 or 16 and then they have some that are 12 and some that are 10 and some that are 9. And the kids that are down to younger ages, they're really good kids. They're doing okay. But the older boy or girl, whatever the case may be, they're a disaster. And I tell them all the time, if you don't deal with this, if you don't get a handle on this, if you don't fix this, 
the, younger, the older one will lead the younger ones right down the same path because of that principle right there. Everything you guys learn, this wrong, this filthy, every dirty joke you ever heard as a young kid growing up, somebody older told you. I can remember the places. I, there's one kid in my mind that if I, could, I can't even remember his name exactly, but I know his face. If I could find him, I'd punch his lights out. You know why? He taught me one of the most filthiest things I've ever heard in my life. And he was older than me. That's how it works. So when they leave, they follow the pattern. The older one, down to the younger ones. It'll always work that way. And the quicker you learn that lesson in dealing with people, the better off you're going to be. Now, as far as what he writes, obviously it had to do with what he's dealing with uh, and something out of the Bible and the Old Testament that, that would actually nail them. In most cases, probably, what he wrote was Deuteronomy 22.22. And it wasn't Deuteronomy 22.22 back then. It wasn't put into the Scripture form like we have it. But it does say, if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Very clearly, both of them. And whatever he wrote on the ground of this is what it was, they now knew that they had nowhere to go because they got caught in their deception by the clear, true Word of God that exposed them. And Bible doctrine will end any debate without ever getting into a debate. That's why he says nothing to them in relationship to what he's saying. Now this lady is left alone, just like Rahab the harlot. And there's another great lesson in the Bible where it, and she's left alone, and you could go back to the case pattern study for this one in Genesis chapter 32, which is one of the greatest studies on the day God gets you and me alone. And that's when God does his greatest work in our lives. You know that? When he gets us alone. Sometimes it's under pleasant circumstances. Sometimes it's under not so pleasant circumstances. But he gets us alone. This is like the woman here back in Joshua. It's also like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Remember her? Now, she gets the forgiveness of God just like we all did, just like Rahab did, just like the woman at the well did in John 4. It's a beautiful story. And she says, he says to her, there's just them two there now. Where's your accusers? And she says, Lord, there's no man to accuse me. You know what he says? Or condemn me. You know what she says? He says, well, I don't condemn you either. Now, that's a great statement based on Bible doctrine. Again, the pattern. The reason why he does not condemn her is found in John chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn anybody that was looking for the truth. <clears throat> it's very clearly this woman was used to be set up. And it brings up another pattern, the difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You see, at the first coming of Christ, he didn't come to condemn anybody. He came to save the world. But 
the world rejects him, so with the second coming of Christ, he comes to condemn everybody. Great white throne judgment. Got to see things like that. So we see another great lesson that will separate the phony crowd, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, back then and today, from the real biblical crowd that uh, will be the remnant, separating the phony Alexandrian cult, the yea hath God said crowd from the Bible believing crowd who make up the truth of God. Their world is one of condemnation by deceit, which you see in this story. Let me show you. This woman, she was used as a setup. They were willing for God to call upon her to be killed by stoning so they could prove their point. They misused the Bible. They misquoted the Bible. They changed the Bible for their own sinful purpose and was going to allow this lady to pay the price. Now, truthfully, if she was taken in the act of adultery, she needed to die, but the man needed to be there too. And I ask again, if they're caught in the very act, how in the world did he get away? It's a setup. It's a setup. This woman was used as a setup to get her killed without the man, a violation of the law, so they could get to Christ. Now, how despicable is that? And these are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the ones that, if you would go back in the day, claimed to be the real deal. They cared nothing about people. They only cared about their agenda. They today will kill you spiritually from taking a book from you just so they can keep in power. And in our day, the modern-day scribes, Pharisees, the Sadducees, the hypocrites will take a young man or a young woman and destroy their faith in the Word of God and cast them into a den of spiritual fornication religiously and ruin their Christian life all to stay in power to be the gods of biblical criticism. Some things never change. Setting themselves up as God, like the devil did in Ezekiel twenty-eight or uh, Ezekiel fourteen and Isaiah, or Ezekiel twenty-eight, Isaiah fourteen, to correct the word of God through education. The yea hath God said, and then they change what God said. They will spend their whole life. They will spend their whole careers telling the best of the best, the young men and the young ladies, God's young men and young women, that there is no absolute truth in life and you cannot know for sure the words of God. And if you really want truth, then you have to come to them and they will decide what truth you get and the rest of your life when you think you found truth and bring it to them, they take great delight in correcting what you just brought because they got to be number one. On the other hand, we here <clears throat> do just the opposite. We take the best of the best, the young men and the young lady, the moms and the dads, the young couples that God gives us, and we give you a pure book by the finger of God. We give you an absolute standard that is all things that you can judge everything in life in faith and practice. We help make you better. We tell you 
that you can have whatever knowledge of God that you want to have. It's not based on your education. In fact, it's just the opposite. The dumber you are, the better off you are when it comes to the Bible. And it's a thing where God can take you and mold you and make you. And that's what we do. That's what we were doing yesterday in the, in the leadership class, taking the young men and the young ladies that have come in here, moms and dads, the older folks, many of them, who, who want to be better. And we did not go into the Greek or the Hebrew or some mystic form. We just gave you clear, simple Bible principles. And they spend their whole life criticizing, their whole life condemning starting with God's Word and then running right up the chain of command to the men who preach it. Christ, on the other hand, and His crowd, they never condemned anybody who really wanted the truth. They understood life, that there was a common Bible to be given to a common man, and they made it so simple to find God's truth in its simplest form. So in your King James Bible today, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, 90% of your King James Bible outside the names are simply one-syllable words in a third-grade English. God uses every illustration. Did you ever see it? Simple ones. He'll use animals to illustrate a truth. He'll use mountains to illustrate a truth. He'll use weather. He'll use a, a sea of tempest. He'll use a storm. Uh, he'll, use, he'll use the common things that we all can identify with that through those common examples he will teach truth. Not one time does he speak in a language like they do last week that you don't understand. He never set anybody up to hurt them. Not one time. He always gave them the truth, whether they liked it or not. He never shortened the truth. He never sugarcoated the truth. The truth was always the truth. But he never set anybody up to hurt them, to make himself look good. You know why? Because truth always looks good. He always put others first and put himself last, like we talked about yesterday. And he was willing to become the sacrifice for the whole world. When in our study, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to sacrifice this woman to stay in power and to look good. Some things never change, folks. Getting the perception of history. The mission statements for the church of Jesus Christ is to build men and women in the Word of God. When you get saved, then you enter into a process here to get you to that goal. We disciple you. Then we disciple you on another level. Then we have different levels that we will bring you through. All for one purpose, to take you, the common man with a common Bible, and build you strong. But it's no good to build you strong, my dear friend, if we don't build you straight. So we have to build you strong, but we have to build you straight. And then we build you strong and we build you straight to build you to stand for God's truth. Their mission statement is to take the very words of God from you and make you depend on them instead of the Holy Spirit of God. 
They'll take you out of the New Testament structure of the church, put you in a non-biblical structure, a Bible college, and then do the damage to take from you the very truth that God gave you. In the church age, you see the great contrast. Anybody with any little bit of Bible knowledge would understand in Revelation uh, 2 and 3, uh, up to uh, chapter 4, you have the seven periods of church history. And the greatest contrast that you'll ever see is the Philadelphian church from 1600 to 1900, which is the greatest period of church history where three-quarters of the world were one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ with a King James 1611 authorized version because the only other Bible was the Catholic Bible, the Douay Reims. And then we see, as I told you last week, in 1900, the devil began to move and God began to move and we enter into the Laodicean church period which starts around 1900 and we're living in it today. You'll find that the church of Philadelphia, God gives them the great title of the church of the open door. And truly no statement could be more truer because literally that church age from that period of time with that book went around the world about three times and every door was opened with the opportunity of the gospel. The church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, church of the closed door. Jesus Christ is on the outside of his own church knocking on the door trying to get back in. Picture of the Word of God, the 20, 21st century. And these are the things that you learn when you come through John chapter 8. These are the things that you learn that you put into your life to keep you in that book because there's a great pressure today by the Christian world to take the Word of God from you. And for you and for me, it's a simple task, just being smarter than the problem. You can see today how stupid they really are when it comes to real clear Bible teaching and Bible truth. They can't even figure out what verses should be in the Bible or not when the next verse tells them what it should be. But that's what happens when you get blinded from the truth of God's Word. Well, we'll hold up there. Hang on just a second here. Okay. I want to bring you up to date on something that tomorrow we will go through our uh, hopefully our final inspection. So be praying about that. Once we get past tomorrow, we will begin to accelerate the next couple of weeks. And next week after we, I don't want to waste the time today, but next week after we get through this tomorrow, I will, at the end of the church service, I will bring you up to speed on wherever we're at and where we're going and give you the time frame for that. But I want to get past tomorrow first. My basically, I'm telling you, pray for tomorrow that everything goes smoothly. we got the structural engineer coming in, a plumber coming in. Uh, the sound boys are going to be over there, and uh, we're going to look at some things uh, and get everything up to speed. So pray for that tomorrow. Then, of course, then next, once we get past that, next Sunday at the end of the service, I will give you a, a, a quick uh, overview and you'll leave here now that we've got, that'll be, tomorrow is stage two. Once we get past stage two, I'm going to show you stage three. Stage three will be our final stage and we'll get everything put together from there and I'll have a complete plan laid out of what we're going to do and then what I need from you guys.
and then we'll we'll go from there. So that's where we're at. Pray about it. I'll keep you posted. And uh, next uh, Sunday, right after church, we'll we'll lay it all out. So make sure you're here so you get what's going on. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Let's get it tore down for Bible study. And uh, I love you very much. And remember all the stuff. Remember this up here if you're going to come down there. And we'll uh, we pray for me Wednesday. Uh, pray for the family all week, but pray for me when i got to preach the funeral that uh, God gives us a good time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Uh, we pray, Father, that you take today what we've learned and help us to grow. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word that you used men to make sure that we had uh, this Bible. Lord, where, where I would be without it, where we'd all be without it. And Father, we just pray, Father, that you continue to help us cherish it for what it is. And Lord, not cast it aside, not, not, not spend any time in it or with it, but take it as it really is, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Thank you, Father. Thank you for today. Give these people a good rest today, a good time today, whatever they may do. And we'll uh, be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Pray this week, guys. A lot going on. We'll have an update for you next week. <laughs>